Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Last Drinks Podcast, a new conversation about how to navigate an awesome life without alcohol, reframing the cultural norms around alcohol in our lives, and hosted by me, Maz Compton, sober since 2015. Hey everybody, welcome to Last Drinks. Here it is. This is the big bad episode that I have been hunting and chasing and um, trying to nail down for months. Actually, since I started this podcast, I had this idea. I was like, I want to talk to a brain expert. I want to speak to a neuroscientist and ask how alcohol affects our brains on a chemical level. I want to know what this thing that we buy in shops, in pretty bottles, what does it do to the chemistry in our brain? How does that impact our behavior? And how can we kind of get a handle on that? You know, what I think it's really important to understand how our brains work in general, to understand why we behave the way that we do, why we choose what we choose. Um, so this is a really, I'm really excited about this episode. The brain expert, the neuroscientist that I speak to is Dr. Inika. Inika just so happens to be a friend of mine and we only recently reconnected. We reconnected through our dear friend, Matthew, who lost his battle with stage four lymphoma only recently. And I tell you what, there's nothing like the death of one of the most incredible people that you know that will bring you together with like-minded people. And Maddie, he was such a beautiful soul and he had a really, like he had that threshold of excellence where he would, he only hung out with the eagles. He flew with the eagles. And so him being a dear friend of mine my whole life since I was 14 years old, and Inika, being a high school friend of Matt's, have circled in and out of each other's worlds um, but never really collided until um, we knew that it was, you know, Matt's last charge when it was his, you know, it was this cancer was going to, we knew that it was going to take him and it, and it was a brutal, horrendous thing to watch a friend go through. But I think during that whole horrendous ordeal, it's placed us really together to do, to like honor Matt's life together in our friendship. And it just so happens to be this beautiful spin on this story that it's like we're collaborating on a work project as well. So I actually have used Dr. Inika and her wonderful research and her excellent brain and brain sensibilities in my upcoming book titled TBC. I think it's going to be called Last Drinks something, 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 not sure. Um, but Dr. Inika is the neuroscientist that, I'm, um, that I've lent on for expert opinion and advice in my book. And then this podcast episode we recorded 
together. And, you know, we find out she's so excellent at articulating how our brains work, how thoughts are created, how behaviours are curated and how we can rewire, we can change our brains. This is one of my favourite episodes so far for sure for several reasons. One, because I set a goal that I wanted to talk to neuroscientists on this podcast and I'm achieving that goal in this conversation, but also because it's this is really our collaboration in our personal lives and our collaboration on this project is a real hat tilt to our beautiful beautiful friend Matt who we miss so, so much and, you know, life really just isn't fair sometimes and I think... When you watch somebody suffer and they lose their battle with cancer, it's really, really hard to find any positives um, because it's just rubbish. It's so awful. But there is this shining little light and I know that Maddie would be so stoked that Inika and I have buddied up and we're going to, you know, trudge along this path of life together even though we can't do it with him anymore. And I know that he would be really, really stoked that we're hanging out. So this one's for you, Maddie. Um, love you, mate. And I miss you so much. Enjoy last drinks with Dr. Inika, a legit neuroscientist. Dr. Inika joins me on the podcast. And what a treat because not only do I think, Inika, you're the smartest person I know, like I can include you as a buddy. And it's so nice to have a buddy on the podcast. <laughs> Likewise. Naz, I'm really stoked to be here. I don't know if I'm the smartest person you know, babe. But anyway, um, <laughs> you are a neuroscientist, a brain scientist. You've studied the brain. And so I have some questions that I really hope will help people understand, like how intrinsically linked our thinking and our behaviour are because that all sort of starts in the brain. And I feel like you've got a really excellent way of explaining how our brains work when it comes to, I guess, habit formation. Mm. Yeah, sure. So really, I like to think of the the brain um, in terms of, you know, right down to that microscopic level, you know, our brains, that fleshy lump of tissue that sits inside our skull is made up of about 300 billion individual cells, individual neurons. So a neuron is just the brain cell. So you could almost think about brain cells like, you know, 300 billion poppy seeds making up your brain tissue. Mm. Um, they're much smaller than poppy seeds, though. You could actually fit about 50 human neurons across the width of a human hair. So they're about wow. hundredth of a millimetre across. They're minuscule. And each one of those individual neurons can connect with up to 7,000 other neurons. So you're literally looking at hundreds of trillions of connections between all of those tiny microscopic poppy seeds or neurons inside your brain. So when we look at how brain thinks and how you know our thoughts work and how communication between those neurons work, um, we can think about it in terms of what we call an electrochemical signal. So these neurons aren't actually physically bound together. They're not physically connected like a lot of other cells and tissues in our body where they sort of make a physical side-by-side um, -side connection. Mm. We actually see a gap in between each of these neurons and this is called a synapse. So if you think about those poppy seeds, those neurons growing out lots and lots of tiny roots known as dendrites or neurites, like mm. these tiny little arms that stretch out and they can connect up to 7,000 cells, as I said, 
they will actually reach a point where they'll um, connect with another neuron, but there'll be a gap between those two neurons. And when a signal crosses, so we have a, a, a let's say, a thought process. Okay. So we have a single thought stimulates one of those neurons and we see an electrical signal traveling about 100 meters a second, traveling along that neuron, along those little dendrites, along those little arms that reach out. And it reaches the end of the, the neuron and there's, it hits that gap, that synapse, and it mm. will trigger the release of a chemical. And that chemical then crosses the gap and then it's taken up by the next neuron and it turns that chemical signal into an electrical signal and then it will travel up as an electrical signal, send a spurt of chemicals out the other end. So we see this sort of electrochemical signaling happening. Now, as I said, you remember those neurons aren't physically connected. Right. But what happens when that chemical signal crosses that gap, it actually induces changes in the neuron on the other side. So that neuron over time becomes more receptive. The more times one neuron communicates with the other, the stronger those neurons become wired together, if you like. You know, they will be very receptive to each other. Yeah. And there's an old saying in neuroscience, neurons that fire together will wire together. So as those neurons pass that same thought process again and again and again, you can think about it like laying ropes across a crevice, across a big you know, gap. Each time that thought is passed across, it becomes stronger and stronger, that connection. On the flip side, if you stop using that particular pathway and you stop having that thought over and over again, or you stop learning that piece of information or whatever it might be, and you stop those communication lines between the neurons, mm. they will actually decay and die away. So this is called a use it or lose it principle. The same way, for example, that a root, so we go back to that seed analogy, and I always think about the brain in terms of it being a garden. There's a lot going on. There's roots and there's shoots and there's lots of growth and you know fertile soil in the brain. Yeah. Um, if you stop those neurons from connecting to each other, so as roots, sorry, as roots will travel through the soil looking for input and sustenance and nutrients and water, if it's not getting that input, it will retract and go looking elsewhere uh, for, for that input, for that nutrient. So our brain cells behave very similarly. And so in terms of how habits form, mm. if we have a single thought and it's said, you know, as, as the average adult human has about 70,000 individual thoughts a day. Um, so if you're a woman, I think, you know, with us, we've I've got twice 20, that, 000. I reckon. <laughs> yeah. I'm and on the upper echelon of them at once. Yeah, yeah. I'm on the upper echelon because this yeah. thing, this machine in this head does Overdrive. not stop. <laughs> Overdrive. There you go. And so these are things that we can actually control the way we think mm. and the thought processes that we have. We're actually in control of them. So are those 70,000 thoughts and that busy brain that we have um, is actually what what creates those connections and what reinforces those connections if we choose to stop having a thought in a particular way or we we choose to stop um, um re-ingraining you know reinforcing those particular habits or those particular thought processes or actions and activities that we're doing we actually stop the connections between the the brain cells from from becoming stronger and over time those connections will die away so we can create and recreate and um, change the very you know connectivity between those neurons just by choosing the way we think or not think. This is so interesting because I feel like so it's so hard to like talk about this stuff because I think a lot of people and this is not a judgment. This is definitely how I I think where I used to think is that 
like, well, I'm not in control of my thoughts. My thoughts are just happening in my head and they're just, they come and they go and then they make, and then now I'm anxious and because I'm anxious now I'm going to have a drink and now I'm going to drink and then black out and then I don't have to think about it. I think that's a really plausible scenario that a lot of people find themselves in where we don't think we have control over our thoughts. But what you're saying is that we actually do. And I think when you can find the empowerment to accept that, then you can start affecting change and it's starting from that that very seed of thought. Yep, exactly. And I think that's a really important point that this is, you know, you, your brain doesn't control the way you think and the wiring in your brain doesn't control how you think. It's actually the exact opposite. Your thinking controls the wiring of your brain. So this is literally mind over matter or mind over brain matter that by choosing to have a particular thought, yeah. you know, you're basically performing micro neurosurgery on yourself and choosing to change the wiring at that very microscopic level. And this is really, I mean, this the whole principle is called neuroplasticity. You know, neuroscience likes to give very technical, complicated terms to everything. <laughs> but if you think, if you break it down, neuro is basically brain. Neuro brain plasticity means it's it's able to be melted down and remolded. It's plastic. It's It's very malleable. So wow. our brains are not hardwired. And even, you know, 40 years ago, this is a relatively new concept, neuroplasticity that was only discovered by scientists about 40 to 45 years ago. Mm. Um, it was first thought that the neurons that we were born with and the connections between them um, at birth were what we had for the rest of our life. But what we know now. Thank is God. It's a unique, exactly, but it's a unique organ in that mm. we, we can change and remould. It's extremely dynamic. It's plastic. It's neuroplastic. We are in control of the way our brain's wired by the, the, the choices we make, the thoughts we have, um, our decisions and so on. I think this is really encouraging for people who are sober curious because mm. yeah. they might be listening going, I don't think I can change. I, I, mm. I drink at the end of a hard day. I drink at the end of a good day. I can't yep. socialise without alcohol. These are all thoughts that we're having yes. in our yeah, head yeah. and we can actually change them. And so therefore I think it makes the idea of changing our behaviour so accessible, yes. like there's a low bar to entry because we all yep. hopefully have a brain that works yes. in the same way as you have explained. And if yep. that's the case, then mm-hmm. it's, it is simple. It's like, as you said, it's that chemistry that really plays into how we form habits and then I guess how we redo our habits and our behaviours. Mm. And so when, you know, we, we hear the a, a common term is, I'll give you a scenario, um, like I get up early for work, I get in my car, I drive to work, I don't remember driving. But I get to work and I'm fine. But yeah. it's like this whole autopilot thing. So yes. is that similar to what you were saying is like that whole um, the wire, the fire together, wire together, neural pathways. I've like gotten up and gotten in my car and driven to work so many times. I don't even think about it anymore. It just happens. Yeah. Yep. So that's what we would um, term habituation or, you know, we, we become desensitized to things that we do over and over. As you correctly said, this autopilot concept is really our brains become very good at just adapting and um, habituating to certain things. And that's just something that you're not actually tapping into the very conscious part of your brain when you're following that route to work. Yeah. Um, it's just in there and it's, it's on autopilot and doing its thing. And so again, for people, that's drinking behaviour. 
right? Yeah. So if you yeah. start drinking as a teenager in social situations and every party you go to, you have a bunch of beer and a bunch of wine and you end up vomiting or whatever, the more and the more and the more that we do that, the more habitual that becomes. And then it's just yeah. like you get to a point where you don't know how to socialise without, without alcohol because you've not ever really done it. Yes. Well, and in terms of thinking about, you know, that neurochemistry, those brain chemicals when we drink alcohol, I think it's important for people to understand sort of, I guess, the nuts and bolts, like what are the chemicals and what are they doing specifically related to alcohol? Because I think if people understand that, they're more likely to, you know, I guess, understand the nuts and bolts and therefore put into practice the things that can help them move away from that or overcome you know those tendencies and from becoming a, a nice feel-good thing to do to drink alcohol to then over time becoming a um, a habit and then mm. over time that becoming you know a very um, abusive relationship with alcohol and and a technical and clinical addiction so yeah. I wanted to I guess talk about those specific neurochemicals and what happens at that um, when we when we drink alcohol yeah so I think I know one of them is dopamine Yes, that's, that's a thing. Right. Yep, absolutely. So if we t- we think about it in terms of that immediate sense, like what what happens immediately and in the short term when we drink alcohol, and then we'll talk about alcohol use over the long term. Okay. So in the immediate sense, um, the when we drink alcohol, it triggers a release of certain neurochemicals. So we talked about this electrochemical signal. Um, that enable our brains, you know, to talk, our brain cells to talk and communicate. And the chemical messages that transmit those signals, so the two main effects, there's one one neurotransmitter called GABA, um, which has a very technical long name, which I won't bore you with, but this is effectively our inhibitory neurotransmitter. It it increases um, the inhibition within our brain. So it's why, you know, this sort of makes us feel sedated and relaxed, you know, when when we have a glass of wine or, or a drink. Um, and it's why, you know, this, this is really the primary um, chemical to making us feel more relaxed and decrease our inhibitions, say, in social settings. I know you've talked about being, you know, a chronic introvert and, and alcohol back in the day would help be sort of, I guess, the social lubricant for you. And that, oh, absolutely. That's, that's because of this increase in GABA, this inhibitory um, neuron in your brain that makes you feel more relaxed and more yes. sedated and you don't feel so anxious. Yes. So um, for me, I would feel really anxious going into a, a very big social situation yep. and so prior to getting there I'd have a few wines yep. to take the edge off yes and, and so then exactly... I could chill a bit more the mm-hmm. inhibitions are down and I can yep. go and do the small talk and do the the extroverted thing that kind of came a bit unnaturally for me ironically because I'm a performer which is very yeah. confusing <laughs> it took me a but long time to figure that hear that a lot too it's yeah it does feel like a paradox it does yeah it's I mean your work is to be an extrovert but personally and you know when you're quiet and private time at home it's oh a cup of tea by the pool yeah yeah (laughs) just like you're you're just like my husband he's the same (laughs) Netflix and a you know a cup of tea and some cookies hot water bottle (laughs) best friend yeah Um, but the problem is when you have more than just a couple of glasses, that GABA, so this inhibitory relaxation um, chemical, is then what leads us to become more sluggish and, you know, clumsy with our movements. We get the slurred speech and our delayed reaction time because we sort of 
reach this we're past the point of just feeling relaxed and now Mm. we've gone into this sort of clumsy because we're too sedated right Um, but then on the flip side of that we have and you mentioned dopamine so this is the other major neurochemical that that is affected with alcohol Um, and it's basically implicated in what we call the reward pathways in the brain so dopamine is what helps us to feel you know that feeling of pleasure and euphoria um, this well-being that you know that warm fuzzy feeling you know so in mm. in um, it's 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 sort of a double whammy you get this really relaxed sedated you know oh I'm you know life is so good and then you get this euphoric um, pleasure feeling from the dopamine yeah um, and this is really thought to be you know this is what this dopamine and this area of the brain that it's released called the the nucleus accumbens and this reward pathways of our brain is what leads us to, so the more we have that feel-good feeling, it leads to us wanting, you know, more of that feeling mm. to really satisfy that craving, you know, for that good feeling, you know, that kick, that, that yeah. rush that we feel. And so over time, this this goes from being just a, you know, a nice controlled, I'll have a glass of wine or two at the Christmas party um, and it's a very controlled and, and you have control over those actions and those mm. desires. But over time we ingrain this and this habit forms and we get so used to this feeling of, you know, the goodness that we get when we have a glass of alcohol, you know, a glass of wine. Um, and it turns into really, I guess, this this habit forming and, and addiction because we're really feeding that reward pathway over and over again. And it becomes more deeply wired into us. The other thing that happens with that too is that we talk about habituation um, and these, these brain cells getting used to this input that mm. over time it actually takes more alcohol to get the same effect, you know, right. that same feel-good effect. So whereas it might take a glass of wine or two uh, for you to feel comfortable and, you know, relaxed in a social setting, that might take a whole bottle further yes. down the track and yeah. more and more because your brain is, you know, really getting used to, to this feeling. And I think further down the track, and I think a lot of people that gravitate towards these conversations are in this situation where despite negative impact, like so despite the yep. hangover, the anxiety, the making a complete dick of yourself, despite yep. all of those consequences, because those neural pathways are so like, like you say, the fire wire, it's so wired in there that yep. regardless of the result, you end up drinking Coronas at 1pm on a Saturday when you woke up that morning saying, I'm never going to drink again. And that then is that really destructive cycle of like, I don't know how to stop. And that was my, that was me. I was like, I, it wasn't leaving Las Vegas. It was, I was still had a really great job. I was in a relationship. I was moderately healthy ish. Mm. You know, I could still get out of bed and go for a run, but I was drinking a bottle of wine every single night and I had no idea how to socialize without being half cut. And yep. so it took completely taking alcohol out of the equation, which was so yep. scary, and mm. resetting those neural pathways over time is what happened. Mm. And I remember day 22, mm. 23 of that first month of not having alcohol, I literally woke up one morning in a car and I felt like someone had switched a light on. And I was like, whoa. And I was like, is this the clarity I have been missing out on for most of mm. my adult life? Because I tolerated what alcohol, like what the effects of alcohol were were doing to me. And then you can kind of exist running on 70% capacity thinking you're 100% capacity. Yeah. You know? And then it's, so it's not until you, and I really do think that if you can find a place where you can moderate, great, good for you. It's not for everyone, but having a decent amount of time 
off alcohol is the yeah. best way to reset those those chemical reactions. Exactly, Maz. And you hit the nail on the head, your magic number of 22 to 23 days after you'd gone off alcohol. It's actually 21 days to form a habit. That's what they say. So 21 days of doing a repeated thing, like abstaining from alcohol and overriding your desire to go crack a Corona or a a bottle of wine. Mm. There's something that happens and this is still, you know, we're still scratching the surface when it comes to knowing all that we know about the brain. We don't know why exactly at that sort of very molecular level why 21 is the magic number, 21 days. Yeah. Um, but it's thought that we go through sort of very um, fundamental genetic changes within the brain cells and all those receptors to the chemicals and sort of that, that, that neural transmission between the cells. There's something really fundamental happening there, but it takes 21 days to get to that. So keeping that number in mind, you know, for encouraging anybody to to go through that pathway of abstaining from alcohol, mm. that's kind of, you know, and, and having the, the right support around you and the right mantras and the right people, um, it, it's absolutely possible. And this is this is what I love. I love my job because, you know, I guess my, my day job is, is my research and my um, you know, working with children with these brain disorders. But um, I guess on the side, as, as really it's just a, such a passion and a hobby, you know, is going around to schools and corporates and churches and anyone that will have me really. I'm so mm, passionate about amazing. this that actually it's so empowering that you have the equipment and the tools right now in, in your inside your, your skull, in, in your brain. Mm. Everybody has the tools and the equipment to unwire and rewire, you know, these these habits. And for someone that might have been... Um, you know, experiencing, I guess, the chronic use of alcohol over a much longer period of time, it's it's harder to break those habits, yeah. but it's not impossible. That's right. Um, but, uh, you know, particularly for those that are, might be moderate to, to heavy drinkers that are, you know, like you say, mm. sober curious, um, whether or not they think they can do it. I mean, you know, w- you went through this yourself. I did it. Years ago, and it was a small miracle. You can, yeah. you can do it. And that self-belief mm. The, the the number one um, the like the first step in in abstaining and um, you know quitting alcohol is believing that you can and you absolutely can you have the equipment inside you right now in in your mind and your brain yeah to, to stop and and really rewire those those cravings and those thoughts away from it I think for so many people listening they're going to feel so relieved because mm, it's like yeah. You know, looking down the barrel of sobriety, if you're in yeah. that like really negative loop and it's, you know, it's damaging relationships and it's just not a good thing in your world, but the, yeah. but it's all you know. It's terrifying looking at yeah. like what what would my life look like if I were sober, even for a small period of time. But to know that the tools are inbuilt and yeah. and it's so, so doable just yeah. levels the playing field and it makes it really accessible. And one thing yeah. I will say, because um, I think humans do this a lot, is mm. you get to day 22, you have the paradigm shift and then you celebrate with a glass of champagne. Don't do that. No, You no, know, absolutely. because it's like then. It's still very delicate, it's those so, connections that you've formed. Because yeah. you've got to spend as long, I guess, like redoing yeah. the rewire and yes. so don't do the whole, I've done the 22 days, I had my aha Oprah moment, 
and yep. like let's go neck a bottle of champagne to yep. celebrate and because I'm in control again and I can do this you know it's you know you're absolutely right it's going to put a you really really important point to yeah make because, it'll put you, know, you straight is, back on your ass this is real like you know yeah. we, we there are people listening to this that are going to listen and take this as gospel truth and you know I, I, it really it, it is it's clinically uh, and scientifically um, proven that this is the way um, that our brains rewire but and this is why people relapse from addictions and, mm. you know, fall through the cracks and um, find themselves back on the, you know, the wagon um, or falling off the wagon, whichever way you look at I've it. I've never figured um, that sentence out. No. Are we on the wagon? Am I <laughs> off the wagon? Did I get back on? I don't There's <laughs> where, where a wagon. But effectively it's, it's something that we need to maintain and it's not mm. just a simple, right, like you say, I've done the 21 days, right, ready to go. This is because your brain is constantly rewiring itself you need to maintain those just as um, I love this analogy that if you're a ship um, you know think about a ship steering on on course and it's got its directions it's got its coordinates of where it needs to go even if it's one degree off and you start to drift by one degree and you think oh, I'll just have one glass or two glasses mm. over time you know that drift become that one degree becomes very um obvious you know you can be miles and miles off course over time yeah we need to keep recorrecting and re you know enforcing those connections and reinforcing those habits yeah um, to to make sure that you know we stay on track and on or off the wagon and I think you know just from the conversation we've had I think for some people that's why moderation is maybe harder than yes. being completely sober because yep. you do, a, you know, a decent amount of time, 100 days or whatever it is in sobriety, and then you you have that one drink. Your brain still yep. can go back to not all That's the way right. back. And but it does. It triggers. It can, yeah, trigger, it can trigger and then connections again. Yep. Yeah. So I just I really wanted to make a point of saying, yeah, just you don't have to like be a superhero and go hang out at a bar on day 21 just to prove to everyone yep. that you're sober. By 21 days, you're not necessarily that sober, but your brain is getting used to the idea of not functioning with alcohol in your brain. Yeah. So you'll feel all these really interesting things that might feel a bit foreign, like your feelings. And I remember yeah. being super emotional in the back end of that mm. first month because I wasn't suppressing anything that came up that felt a bit mm. funky for me. And then, like I said, the clarity in my head, my creativity just went on another level and then because I had this beautiful commodity of time that I used to spend just getting wasted I was like plus oh, money plus money thousands <laughs> I you know it's all of a sudden mm. it's like I've got all this time what am I going to do well of course I'm going to clean out my kitchen cupboards duh mm. and you just start and then you go well that was productive oh I ticked mm. that off my, you know and it's this and see now you're reinforcing the good stuff the good stuff that actually the the feeling you get when you declutter is actually also activating the reward pathways you get dopamine release when you're doing something like that my husband can attest to that yeah. I <laughs> I rearrange the house like it's a slight problem. Marie Kondo yeah, would be proud of me. But yeah. yeah, I'm like, I'm always, do he's like, what are you doing now? I'm like, I don't know. It just feels good. It sparks joy. Yeah. But yeah. see, and that's that, that's that pleasure reward center. Mm. And see, I think we think about the reward and pleasure pathways as sometimes in a negative sense with negative connotations that, you know, because this is how addictions form. But we can also become, you know, very, um, 
rewired in in those pleasure centers for for good things you know like actually kindness random acts of kindness Mm. also release the same chemicals that that sort of that pleasure feeling in the reward pathways and let's you know flood our brains with dopamine doing good things like decluttering and you know serving others and you know kindness I mean it sounds it's actually not as um I guess you know fluffy feel good as as what I'm making it sound it's actually got a very neuroscientific basis and and doing things and and when we're in this state of you know love and empathy and awareness of others it's actually doing incredible things neurologically for us as well so to I guess diversion is is what you're really getting to you say I've got all this time keep yourself busy rather than drinking, go declutter your cupboards or go, you know, bake something and take it to a friend in need. Or, and this is the so you're thing. actually diverting yourself away from yeah. it to do good things. And you're ingraining those, you know, rewiring those connections, good connections into the brain. That's so encouraging too because in the book that I'm writing, um, I get people to build out their very own sober toolkit. So I list mm. all of the sober tools that I've kind of, you know, dabbled with and found over my eight-year eight years of sobriety. And I'm like, you know, know thyself, like pick what works for you. And one of them is do something for someone else. If you're having a moment where you're like, I've done this sobriety thing for a few weeks now and I'm, you know, tempted, go and do, go and buy somebody a coffee, bake a meal or drop it on a neighbor's doorstep, send, send somebody some flowers anonymously and light somebody else's world up because the feeling that you get when you impact joy and kindness into someone else's life it's not done enough. But if everybody yeah. did it, it would be a really different world. Yeah. It's a good addiction to have, right? Yeah. And then can you take that too far? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, I guess everything in moderation, right? You get a car. You but, get a car. Yeah. <laughs> get your Oprah on. <laughs> but, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think important to, you know, emphasise having that toolkit around you. And scaffolding is really important to have the right people around you. You want people that are going to support you with these new choices and reinforce, you know, that you're doing the right thing. I'm really big on mantras and um, putting, you know, my kids are familiar with me getting out, you know, the chalk pens yeah. and writing on their mirrors. And I'll do little, you know, little quotes that. and, um, you know, be brave. You, you're braver than you know, stronger than you think and loved more than you can possibly imagine, you know, That's things like that. Beautiful. Because you know what, when you expose yourself to that sort of thing and mm. you've got, you know, your, your um, quotes and um, what's the word I'm looking for, Maz? Oh, your mantras? Inspirational quotes, yeah. Oh, yes. Mantras. It's really, it's, it, it does have an effect at that very fundamental neurological level. When you get up in the morning and you see that saying, you know, I, I am strong, I will get through this, you're reinforcing those pathways in your brain. It's not just a, you know, a lip service. It really mm. does make a difference. So to reinforce yeah. over and over again, you know, for those weak moments, phone that person who's your support person who yeah. can pep talk you through getting through that craving Um, that scaffolding is really, really important and taking away the things that might tempt you for for a period. It doesn't have to be, you know, that you can never be around alcohol again. Um, But it's just, you know, being kind to yourself and making it easier for yourself and putting the right structures, tools and scaffolding in place to help you through you know, what is invariably, you know, difficult for most people to, mm. to make that decision. And um, I think what I love that you do that for your kids on their mirrors, because mm. I think that that becomes their self-talk yeah, and we can exactly. do it to ourselves, you know, like 
it's what whatever you are going to get put in your eyes, it's going to yep. land in your brain, it's going to yep. plant a seed, and the more positive self-talk you do, that's yes, affirmations, <laughs> affirmative. Yeah, yeah yes. the more positive self-talk that's going on in your brain, again, it's those neural pathways that are getting created. And on the yep. flip side, the more you sit there going, this is so shit, I'm not drinking, I'm missing out, yeah. I really want to yeah. drink, blah, blah, blah. Like then that mm. is going to be the self-talk and that's exactly. not going to be helpful. Yeah, and actually even mm. though you think you're, you know, breaking the habit, you're actually still reinforcing it because you're thinking about alcohol, you're talking about alcohol and how yeah. much you're missing it. You know, this mm. is there's something called point fixation. I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, but um, effectively, I mean, I'll, I'll use example. My husband used to race um, super bikes. You know the Moto uh, Moto GP. Bikes. Very cool. As a as an amateur, he wasn't professional, but <laughs> he would talk about this thing. You know, point fixation on the track. That as you're going down, you know, this straight at 300 kilometers an hour, Shoot. 280 kilometers an hour, there might be some sort of blemish on the track, like a bit of gravel or something. You know, that you look at this this thing and you say, I can't hit that. I'm not going to hit that. I'm not going to hit this point. But because you're, you're so looking fixated at it. on it, what do you do? Yeah. You hit it. Oh, my God. Right? So yes. by, not, by focusing on the fact that you're no longer having alcohol and how shit it is that you're not having alcohol and how much you're missing that drink, it's actually a form of point fixation and you're going to stumble on it. Yeah. So it's actually better to completely divert your attention, fill your mind with other things, mm. fill your days and your, you know, your hours with other things so that you're not constantly thinking about that alcohol and how much you're missing it yeah so that's so that before you set out to do it yeah you know, get your list of things you can do to, to the toolkit and and the people you can lean on bake a lasagna it's um yeah. it's interesting that you say that because when I was learning how to snowboard mm. um it's a similar thing so we were we I was learning to do tree runs and in my head I'm like don't look at the trees don't look at the trees <laughs> Because if you look at the tree, if you look at the tree, you're going to hit it. it. Mm. And especially Mm. when you're in like tight forest and it's really, you know, you've got to slip and slide your way through there. You have to look for the gaps. You've got to look where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. That's so interesting that you've kind of flipped that into Mm. like, because that's been a sober experience for me where I'm like, Instead of thinking about not drinking all the time and being annoyed that I'm not drinking, I had to flip it completely and go, what can I do? Like, what am I going to do rather than sit here and be miserable and meditate on that misery and feel like I'm missing out? I'm going to go create something epic and and walk towards something more exciting for me. Yep, exactly. cool. And there's a saying too, I mean, that you were talking about the seeds of thought that actually what what you give your mental attention to is what you will manifest in your life. Mm. So I'll say that again for your listeners. Wait, hang on what, a second. What, what you give your mental attention to is what you will manifest in your life. So I'm a by repeating big manifester yeah. <laughs> of good things. Yeah, see, yeah. and the more you think about it mm. and you look to the horizon and you say, well, this is where I want to be, you know, a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, and you think about that and you you meditate on that, the good stuff, and you mm. manifest all your thoughts towards that, then, you know, you, you will see the fruits of that. And and we really are, you know, the sum of what we, what we think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, therefore I am. And it's true. I think you really, you know, not for, just from a sort of a, psychological um 
you know, um, metaphysical sense. This is very, very much hardcore biological science. You know, I love what, that. What we think about manifests in our brain and and forms the connections for it. Because I think a lot of people think manifesting is a load of you know, spiritual new age BS. And I think there's an element of that. I think the wellness industry really takes stuff, you know, can can take stuff from science and really fluff it up and dumb it down, which is annoying. Um, But I think, I think people will hear what, you know, truly what you're saying, because we've had a big discussion about how our thoughts kind of create us because they create our behaviors and we are how we behave. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you absolutely can manifest things because it's it's there's that book I can't remember who it's by, but it's Think and Grow Rich. It's not yeah, like right. work your ass off and grow rich. Yeah. But the whole yep. principle is like what yep. you're focusing your attention to, what you're feeding your brain, will become how you exist in the world. Because mm-hmm. so if you think amazing. about that, like everything goes back to everything about us is it's, it really defines us in character. It defines our habits, our actions, our reactions, our successes, our failures our relationships, everything in life really comes from a thought, you know, beginning of seed of a thought. And Mm. then over time we keep having that thought, it becomes a habit and it builds, you know, over time those, those habits become who we are in character. And to think about the power of our thinking and the power of our mind Mm. is I think essential to, you know, understanding that we've got the equipment we need um, right here. At the same time though, I do want to make the point that it's not, as, as easy for everybody, you know, to simply rewire and that if you do have trouble and you do feel like you're falling off, you know, the wagon, then to make sure you've got the right people around you, 100%. go and seek medical advice and yep. medical help because that, that will be a very real um, situation for a lot of people. Yeah. And don't be disheartened. You know, it's, it's, it's something that we can do and with the right supports around us, we can. So don't, don't be discouraged or disheartened if you find that it's a lot harder than you thought mm. or you're relapsing or really struggling with it. Yeah, and I love the term scaffolding. That's mm. so good because, like, your GP, your therapist or your online platform or you know, however you're deciding to do or combination of many things as part of your scaffold is going to keep that structure right? It's going to, because you think about when you put scaffold around a house, it's yeah. holding it in place. That's what the scaffold yeah. is there for. It's to yeah. hold you up to help you succeed. And I love that image of, so yeah. what's, what's in my scaffolding to help me, you know, navigate this journey and navigate it really well. And maybe you get a month or two down the track and you think, um, I need to add this in, or I, you, you know what? I can like pause on the therapy stuff right now because I'm feeling really strong in my choice or, or what have you and pivot accordingly. Mm, yeah that's such great advice thank you so much you are just so brainy (laughs) you are but what I loved and I love this about our chat a couple of weeks ago is I just feel like you you take this this idea of neuroscience I think blows people's minds they're like it's so sciencey and it's just too much and I don't understand it's so complex and you really make it so easily understandable even for a nuffy like me and I know that so people listening will probably have a really great understanding now of how the old lump of fat in their head works <laughs> and that's going to set them up for a win. It's so good. Mm. Oh, I'm, yeah, I hope this is a you know, light bulb for a lot of people. It's, it's, yeah, it, 
it, I'm I'm passionate about it, Maz. You know, helping people. I know live live better, and you know they've got the equipment. They just need to know how to use it. That's so good. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at Last Drinks Pod. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,